We've been spending a number of weeks exploring the book of Romans. We've been going through chapter by chapter, picking it apart, seeing what's been going on. And just to provide a bit of context for those who've not been here with us before, or if we might have forgotten, Romans is the longest letter in the New Testament. It was written by Paul, who had a miraculous conversion. And it was sent to the early church to strengthen them and encourage them in Rome. And the main theme of this book is to highlight God's righteousness. It's to highlight God, not Paul, God's righteousness. And it's often been described, I've read many, many books about uh, Romans has been preparing um, various preachers for this. It's been described as almost a keg of TNT. It's packed full of points, theological points, different perspectives, teaching points, ready to go off. And so far in our reading, we've covered a range of topics, including God's sovereignty, being released from the law, being dead to sin, amongst many, many others. So today, we're going to move on to chapter 12. We're going to look at Romans 12, verse 1 to 21. So you can turn and open your Bibles to Romans 12, 1, 21. We're just going to read. Romans 12, 1 to 21. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, then men, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exalts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but be thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably and peaceably with all. Beloved, love that, beloved talking to the church. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, said the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. 
do not overcome by evil. Uh, do not be overcome by evil, sorry. Overcome evil with good amen. Wow. So when I was preparing this preach, I managed to get it to about two hours on my first uh, my first lot of information. So having done it a couple of times and tweaked it, I managed to get it to about an hour and fifty minutes. So prepare yourself for <laughs> in for long. I have taken some faces. But what's clear is that Paul was passionate. Paul loved the gospel. He was passionate about it. And this is evident in his writing, any of the books that you look at. If anybody had a gospel-driven life, Paul was the man. Once converted, he made it his life goal to go and spread the gospel with anyone he encountered and everyone. So let's just go back to Romans 12. Well, what's happening here? Paul is introducing us to a concept in his letter. And we need to just remind ourselves that this letter was written to the Roman church, which was fairly inexperienced. Here, he's showing how Christianity should look. Modern scholars would say that this is called relational theology. To put it simply, this is the idea that our relationship with God should impact those around us, whether they be in the church or everyday life. And the first thing we need to look at when we look at this scripture is the first line. It's Paul's use of therefore, and it's not there by accident. We see this used three times prior in this letter. Romans 3, Romans 5, and Romans 8. Why does he use this therefore? Well, we see in Romans that Paul carefully uses therefore in order to teach us an application point. Basically, he gives us a theological point, he gives us some teaching, and then he uses therefore as almost a signal to show us how this should be applied and look in our lives. Romans 3.20, we see the therefore of condemnation, we were condemned. Romans 5.1, we see the therefore of justification, but we're justified. And Romans 8.1, we see the therefore of assurance. We have assurance of this. Paul shows us in Romans that we deserve to be condemned. However, because of God's love and righteousness, we have been justified. And our assurances of this are in him. We deserve to be condemned, but because of God's righteousness, we've been justified and we have assurance of this. How good is God? Amen? We should be quick to say, Amen. In light of this, Paul therefore is introducing his fourth therefore, the therefore of dedication. And let's look back to verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a, li- a living sorry, sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Straight away, Paul is reminding us that God is merciful. And he does this for two reasons. One, as always, to glorify God and reveal his character. But also, thinking back to that early church, inexperienced church, he's reminding us that we all need grace. We all need God's mercy. Let's go back to Romans 3. All have sinned, sorry, and fallen short. None of us here are better than anybody else. 
Doesn't matter if you've got a house, no house. Doesn't matter if you've got money, no money. All of us have sinned and fallen short. We all need God's mercy. Amen? We cannot save ourselves by works, by good deeds, by how much we need, or by simply being a good person. It's all because of Jesus. We need his mercy. And this is key. We need to realise and understand that we have fallen short. This is the essence of the therefore of dedication. When we truly realise, sorry, we were lost and we all need saving, we begin to appreciate, truly appreciate what he has done for us. And the love of the gospel in our hearts emerges. You see, Jesus' death was a choice. He willingly gave his life for us. Just take that in. The Son of God who created the universe allowed himself to be beaten, whipped, spat on, have his beard pulled out and be hung by the cross while being mocked for us. You see, his grace was costly. It cost Jesus his life. It's amazing. And I refer back to um, a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer a couple of times in preaches that have done a brilliant book of cost of discipleship. I would really recommend that you read it. It's definitely changed my perception of the grace we're afforded. And he states that grace is trampled upon daily because we cheapen grace. We take his grace and we love that we're forgiven, but we're not prepared to give our all in dedication and our life to him for this. He argues if we truly, truly understand the cost of grace, then we can't help but give our lives to him in dedication. And we can see the same argument here in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God, in his mercy, has freed us from condemnation, and therefore we need enjoy to dedicate our lives as a living sacrifice. And that term there, living sacrifice, used by Paul, is really key. We can see two examples previously of a living sacrifice in the Bible. Isaac, who was obediently prepared to lay down his life as a sacrifice to God. However, his life was substituted with a ram. And also, the one who it's all about, Jesus, who gave his life as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Both obediently were prepared to lay down their lives. The ultimate sacrifice. The therefore of dedication means appreciating what Jesus has done for us and then realising that giving our lives isn't a must, but it's a joy. It's an honour in light of realising what he has done for us rather than something we have to do. We want to do it. He saved me. He loves me. He died for me. Jesus, take my life. You see, a gospel-driven life is a life driven by a love of the gospel and what he has done. And in order to do this, it requires dedication. So the first point that Paul makes here is that we need to dedicate our bodies. 
The word present used by Paul is literally translated as once and for all. To live a life driven by the gospel requires us not to be half-hearted. We see warnings throughout the Bible, Revelation, other parts, where the Bible warns us against this, I hate this word, tepid, such a rubbish word, tepid, lukewarm Christianity. It's not hot, it's not cold, it's in the middle. We need to be prepared to realise what Jesus has done for us, the cost of his grace, and dedicate our lives and our bodies to him. To give everything to serve him. And we can't do this half-heartedly. This is the point that Paul's making. If we truly appreciate what he's done for us, we cannot physically do it half-heartedly. Is there anything that we are holding on to that's preventing us from dedicating our all to God? Just take a moment there just to think. Is there anything that's preventing you from dedicating your bodies to God? Is everything we do all for Jesus? Are we working at work for Jesus? At church for Jesus? With our friends and our family for Jesus? Are we giving our all in church and to those around us for Jesus? Are we investing time here and with people who don't know Jesus? Are we looking to get stuck in for Jesus? The first thing we need to do is appreciate his grace and dedicate our bodies. Give our all to him. Point two, give your mind. The second thing Paul instructs us to do is to dedicate our mind. When we go back to verse two, do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now the word transform here is the same word used in Matthew 17 too. It literally means to metamorphosize. We need to change our mindset. Our hearts, our minds, can be easily dominated by things around us. TV, stress, worry, anxiety, Netflix, porn, lust, greed, personal ambition. If we let the world control our thinking, we become conformers to the status quo. However, if we let God, God's word, the Holy Spirit, control our thinking, we can become transformers, impacting everything that we come into contact with. So we need to ask ourselves the question, well, what are we filling our minds with? Are we allowing time to spend with Jesus? Are we allowing time to listen? We're really good at off, off, uh, often bringing our problems. We're not very good at listening to what he has to say to us. Are we allowing time to meet him? To ask him what he wants? A real metamorphosis will change the way we think. We become hungry for God's word. To hear his voice is the only true thing that satisfies us. Have we got that hunger for our minds? Are we hungry? Personally, I'd say I'm probably not enough. Ask yourself, have we got that hunger? And the third point Paul makes is, give God your will. Not thy will, but yours be done. And this is the most hardest point. 
We can dedicate our bodies and our minds, but if our will is not there, it fades away. We need to dedicate our will and surrender it to him. What does this look like? Let's look at Paul. So Paul, no doubt, as most human beings do, probably had ambitions for a nice life. Help lead a church, perhaps? Married? Have children? Spend some days teaching the people for Jesus? And yet that wasn't the will that God had for him, and he had to, probably had to surrender that. What happened to Paul? He didn't have the nice life, the cushy life. He was shipwrecked, beaten, stoned. He had cold nights, he went hungry. But yet he rejoiced in it all because he knew it was the will of the Father. In an age where we live with our rights, we have the right to do this. Surrendering our will is probably the hardest of those three points that Paul makes. And yet it's the most rewarding. I'm just going to share a little story. Um, I don't like to talk about myself. I don't, just don't, but I'm going to anyway. Um, when me and Han first got married, we, we realised that um, God wanted us to be involved in a church plant, just to help, really. Um, where we were before, we had a family nearby, we had lots of friends and family. Um, we had a really comfortable, we had a really nice little house. Um, we worked not too far from where we lived. It was all perfect, really, for that nice, cushy life. And we felt on our hearts that God was telling us to come and be involved in the church plan. Just to help, really. Um, and I agonised over this. If I'm really honest with you, I want to say, oh, I just heard the call and I went, and I didn't. I agonised over this. I was holding on to what I wanted in my will. I didn't want to leave my friends behind. I didn't want to leave my nice job behind. I didn't want to leave my little house behind. I didn't want to leave a church I was comfortable in behind. And about a year it was, the process was. And I could just feel God, and we both felt it. God was just saying, guys, it's time to go. My will is for you to go. And I can't say it was straightforward by any means at all. But we knew it was God's will for our life, and we rejoiced in it. We felt lonely. We felt tired. We've had things go wrong. We've had things go right. But through it all, because we realised that this was God's will for our life, we had joy within that. A gospel-driven life requires us to give everything to God. Everything. In the prayer meeting last week, we were talking, uh, and we were talking about pinning our colours to the mast. We need to be pinning our colours to the mast. We can't do this half-heartedly. God, I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to give you everything. That means my own dreams have to fall by the wayside for your glory. I'll do it. We look at Joshua 24. Me and my house will serve the Lord. Have we got that passion? He doesn't say, me and my house will serve the Lord as long as it suits me. He stands in front of the multitudes, tribes, me and my house will serve the Lord. When we look back at the context of this letter, this was the key to Paul to get this across. An early, inexperienced church would have easily been a target for the enemy. Pride, lies, mistrust. But what Paul is saying here is simple. Recognise Jesus has saved us. Realise what this means. And dedicate your body, mind and will to him. Then, we need to serve him. When we recognise his grace, 
when we dedicate our body, our minds and our will, we're then ready to serve him. So we're just going to go back to verse 3 to 8. So 12, 3 to 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We all have different gifts. However, these gifts are all valuable to Jesus. Not all of us are called to stand on the stage and preach in front of masses like Billy Graham. Not all of us are called to lead a church, but we are called to dedicate our lives in whatever we do to serve him with the gifts he has given us. So we pose the question, we realise what God's mercy is, we give our body, our minds and our will. How are we serving him? Are we serving well in the gifts that we've been given? Are we giving him the praise of that business deal that went well? Are we thinking about how we use our time, the gifts that we have for his glory? Are we making sure that we are making time to go and make disciples of men for his glory with the skills that we have? Remember, a love of the gospel, a true love of the gospel, will lead to a gospel-driven life that will see change whatever our gift is. You see, once we've acknowledged our need for Jesus and appreciate this and then dedicate our lives, our lives will be centred around him. Inevitably, the gospel will ooze out of everything that we do. And we see in 9 to 21 that what this looks like. You see, we read in James 2 that faith without works is dead. A truly gospel-driven life, sorry, a truly gospel-driven life realises the need for a saviour and then spreads their, spends their life to dedicate sharing this with those around them. It's stripped of personal ambition, stripped of anger, bitterness, resentment, hatred, hatred, laziness, tepid Christianity, and it focuses on God. A gospel-driven life is one dedicated to the Father. A gospel-driven life loves the world and Jesus. A gospel-driven life realises that we're all sinners and therefore we can't look down on others. A gospel-driven life doesn't sit about moaning. It gets out and shows the same mercy that was afforded to us, to the rest of the world. A gospel-driven life breathes Jesus. The beauty of this is that we can become obsessed with Jesus, whatever our calling, and inevitably we will change the world. We will show that love to Jesus, uh, to the world that Jesus gave to us. And I just want to end with an encouragement, really. When we think about a gospel general life, when we look at the disciples, for instance, they realised that they needed God's mercy. They dedicated everything they had for God. 
but they impacted the world in their own giftings. And I just, I get a bit emotional when I talk about this. I've mentioned this before at a prayer meeting, but I just want to just have a look and see how their lives are now, some of the disciples, just to see just their true passion for Jesus, what a true gospel-driven life looks like. Andrew was Andrew was was scourged, the words he scourged, scourged, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And he was hung on a cross, and he was intentionally hung on a cross without nails to prolong his suffering. And does anybody know what he did whilst he was hung on a cross and there was a road? Does anybody know what he did? Dave preached. That's the love of God. He's hung on a cross bleeding, and he's still preaching to people as they walk past on a road. Phenomenal. That's a gospel-driven life. That inner core, when everything is stripped away, of loving Jesus. James, this is brilliant, I love this. James was faithful to the end. And he stood accused. And even to the end, he just proclaimed Jesus into the situation. And I didn't know this when I read about this, but he was, the, his accuser was so moved by his dedication, his commitment to say, God, I give you everything despite it all, that he starts and said, I need this. And he dedicated his life to God and he ended up being executed with James. Phenomenal. That's a gospel-driven life. Everything that we do is about Jesus. Let's look at the other end. They're quite extremes there. The other end, John, passed away peacefully, but we know that until his last day, he was telling people about, around him about Jesus. What do they all have in common? The love for Jesus. They realised they needed God's mercy. They were not half-hearted. They dedicated everything they had to God. And we see, till their dying day, their love for Jesus. The therefore of dedication. We realise we're sinners. We know that God has justified us. We have assurances of this because his word tells us. And then, therefore, we need to dedicate our lives to him. I'm just going to ask you all to stand. That's all right. If you're able to, just stand. We're just going to pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the grace that you've afforded us, Lord God. Lord God, there might be people here this morning who don't know about you. But Lord God, we thank you that we can be reminded that your grace is for all, Jesus. For every single person here. And so, Lord God, we pray, if you don't know Jesus, that you give your hearts to Jesus. It just requires a simple prayer. Father God, I'm sorry for the things I've done. I'm sorry for thinking I can save myself. I realise that I can't. I need you. Lord God, forgive me and let me spend my life dedicated to you. Lord God, for those of us who have been Christians for a while and we realise that we fall short of the standard of dedicating our whole lives 
For those of us who've held on to parts of our will or other things in our life that we just don't want to let go, Lord God, we pray for forgiveness. I'll be the first one to throw my hands up there and say, that's me. I'm sorry, God, for the times I haven't given you everything. But Lord God, we need to remind ourselves and enjoy the fact that you are a merciful God. Lord God, we want our core to sing of you, God. We want to be known as a church who are passionate about you. When times get tough, when times are well, Lord God, that we are preaching to those people around us, that we are telling people about the good news that you have afforded us, Lord God, because you're a loving God. And when we realise what you've done for us, we cannot do anything else. Lord God, on our final breath, Whenever that is, Lord God, we want to look back and know that we have proclaimed you. You are a good king, a merciful king, a loving God. And Lord God, fill us with boldness now. Make us bold to go out and share your word with that world that needs you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your costly grace that cost you your life. And thank you for so easily you give it to us. You're a good king, a loving father, and you deserve our dedication because it's the least we can give. We praise you, Father God. Amen.